On October 25th of 2003, ABC ran a news article on identifying people by the way they walk, and it was this really futuristic, out there kind of an article. They were saying, can you imagine that now they can assess by the way people walk that uh, they can identify a person? November of 2018, AP writer Dake Kang wrote about GRS being used in Beijing, China. GRS being Gate Recognition System. And it says, the Chinese authorities have begun deploying a new surveillance tool, Gate Recognition, that uses people's body shapes and how they walk to identify them even when they hide their faces from the camera. Huang Yangzhen, the CEO of Waitrix, said that its system can identify people from up to 165 feet away, even with their back turned. You don't need people's cooperation for us to be able to recognize their identity. Gate analysis can't be fooled by simply limping, walking with splayed feet, or hunching over because we're analyzing all the features of the entire body. I thought it was interesting, 2003, what sounded futuristic, 2018 is literally the way they're doing things, and yet in the first century, Paul understood. You can recognize someone by the way they walk. Let's look again at the passage that Brother Micah read for us. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the calling, walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. It's not a worldly walk he's talking about. He's talking about an earthly walk. As we've been studying the first three chapters, the Apostle Paul has been telling us all these wonderful things that God has provided for us. But we also live in a demon-possessed world. We live in a skeptical world. We live in a world that wishes... Things can be different, but they really don't believe things can be different. Believers get to represent God, to bring glory to God. As you look back in chapter 3, it says, Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus. He's saying, through us, by us, through Jesus Christ working in our life, we're going to give the right impression of God, the right view of God. That is glory. The glory that a person receives is when a person is accurately known and known for who they really are in a good sense. We're not talking about a criminal. We're talking about in a good sense here. So at the conclusion here of Ephesians 3, Paul says, unto him be glory in the church. In chapter 4, now he's going to describe how can we do this. And today we're going to look at unity and diversity in the church. Unity and diversity in the church. A worthy walk impacts the saved and the unsaved around us. A worthy walk doesn't change who we are. God's already done that. But it does allow people to recognize you and be blessed by you by the physical characteristics. When they do walk recognition, it doesn't change who the person is. 
It's just the outward characteristics allow them to see who is really on the inside. Notice this with me. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, we read, Only let your conversation, your lifestyle, be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that ye stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Colossians chapter 1 makes this same statement that ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. And then the Apostle Paul talking about himself in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 says, Ye are witnesses, and God also, how holily and justly and unblameably we behaved among uh, ourselves, among you that believed. J. Vernon McGee said it this way, People may not be telling you this, but they are evaluating whether you are a real child of God through faith in Christ. The only way they can tell is by your walk. And then he went on to make this statement. He says, it's not so much how you walk as where you walk. Would you just keep your finger here in this passage, but would you turn with me over to 1 John chapter 1? 1 John chapter 1. Because this... This helps us clarify, how do we do this walk? 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, we read, But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanseth us from all sin. Walking in the light is walking in the light of God's Word. It's following what God's Word says. So how can we walk in unity? Last week we start, stopped at verse 3. Let's go now to verse 4, and we see the unity in the church. There is one body and one spirit, even as you are called, and one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. So last week we looked at the personal characteristics of believers, lowliness, meekness, patience, and with those characteristics building on each other, we then can assist each other. We can help each other. We can bear each other along. Today we see the unifying characteristics of a church. First of all, one body. That's describing the number of believers from Pentecost to the rapture. It's talking about all believers, the body of Christ. People would say that's the universal church. Then we know there's a local church, but he's describing this one body, this unity that we have, is this big picture of looking at all those that are believers. One spirit, the same Holy Spirit who baptizes us into the body of Christ, the Holy Spirit is the one who unifies us. The Holy Spirit is the one so as we work together, we can get along together. Verse 4, one hope of your calling. This is the same finish line that every believer looks at. All of us today are looking at the same finish line. It's the finish line where we will be taken out of this world with Christ. Titus chapter 2 verse 13 says, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the hope of our calling. The hope of our calling is we know one day we will all 
be taken out. Either if we have died, our bodies will be raised. If we're still alive, we will be raptured. He goes on to say in verse 5, one Lord. This is describing the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. Now, he's the head of this church as a local church, but Jesus Christ is the head of the church, all believers. One faith, verse 5. This is the body of doctrine that was given to us by the apostles. When you hear someone talk about faith, they're not talking about individual faith. They're not talking about placing your faith in Jesus Christ, talking about the faith that was once delivered. It's talking about the body of information that was given to us. What holds believers together, what allows us to worship together is the faith, the body of doctrine that we all hold to together. Verse 5, one baptism. This is the description of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We were all made in Christ the same way. We were baptized into him through the Holy Spirit. And then we come to verse 6. One God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. This is like the fireworks ending to this. He's describing that we all have the same Father today. We are all family. Now, Sonship, becoming part of the family, can only happen through Jesus Christ. He's not talking about God the Creator so that we are all unified by being human beings. He's describing the sonship, the familyship that we all have through Jesus Christ. And there's a very plain difference between the saved, the sons, and those who are not sons. And notice what it says. It tells us some doctrine about God. He is above all. He is beyond this world. He is beyond everything that we can imagine. God is omnipresent. He is above all. He is through all. He is everywhere. And he is in all. He is motivating. He is empowering. When we think about our God, it gives us great comfort to realize whatever you're doing today, he is with you. He is a part of what's going on. We've looked at the unity. Now I want us to go to verse 7, and I want us to look at the diversity of the church. Verses 7 through 11. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore he saith, when he hath ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave some apostles and some prophets, and some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. We'll pause there for a moment. I want you to see the diversity of the church. Isn't it interesting that as he's talking about unity in the first six verses, what's the first word of verse 7? But. It's, he's putting it in opposition to. He's saying, look, there is this unity of the body, but there's going to be diversity in the body. Just because we have unity doesn't mean there's uniformity. 
in the church, there's going to be differences. In a local church, there's going to be differences. In the global church, in the universal church, in the body of Christ, which is all that have believed Jesus Christ as their Savior, there is going to be differences. So here's a contrast. And now we're going to talk about this diversity of believers. Find it interesting. Jesus Christ... It says, but unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. What's he describing? First of all, he just begins by saying, everyone has received a gift and you are empowered to be able to use that gift. Sometimes we look at the gifts and we say, well, I don't know if I got a gift. According to this text, the Holy Jesus Christ gave gifts to all of his children. According to this text, also, with the gift also comes the ability to use that gift so that you are not caught without being able to, to serve. Romans chapter 12, 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 13 tell us that God gives different gifts to every one of us. Now, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, those are not exhaustive gifts. And what's interesting to me is, and we'll talk about this a little bit later, with our gifts, it is this palette of, of how God will often blend gifts. Even if you would say, you know, primarily my gift is, and someone else say, well, that's interesting. Primarily I think my gift is, but if you begin looking at the people and you look at how they use those gifts and they look at how they impact the body, they all have little differences. It's like God takes things and blends them and makes every person unique, just like a snowflake has many different common things. Yet, snowflakes are all individual. Fingerprints are all similar, but they're all unique. And you know the exciting thing this morning as we look at this passage as Paul now has taught us all these doctrines, and he says, here's how you're going to bring glory to me. He says... First of all, you're going to do it by demonstrating the unity that we have. We may not always agree with other believers, but we still love other believers because they're in the family. And that's sometimes hard because as we want to protect and we feel very strongly about a certain doctrine, we want to make sure that when, when we move beyond what the Scripture has said and we say, okay, because the Scripture says this, I'm going to do this, some people may do a little different application. We must be true to what the Holy Spirit leads us to do, but we also need to make sure that we do not damage the unity of the body when we disagree with what someone else does. We go on here, though, as we look here in the body, every one of us is a unique, different mix of the gifts. And I want you to notice the purpose of these gifts are for the church. The whole purpose of the gifts is for the church. Sometimes you'll hear people talk about, well, I have this spiritual gift, and they use it for themselves. What I want you to understand is that's not why God gave the gift. God gives us gifts for the benefit of the church. It's to bless the church. This is a fascinating text to me. If you wouldn't mind turning one more time over to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, as it's talking about gifts. He 
he says there's all kind of differences, but he says, but the manifestation, manifestation meaning the exhibition, making visible, but the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with all, to profit everybody. So literally, a gift if this is the Spirit of God doing something through the believer for the purpose of building the body of believers. You can't separate the Holy Spirit from your spiritual giftedness. When you see a spiritual gift being manifested, it is the exhibition, it is the demonstration of the Holy Spirit in your life. That's what makes this day, this is going to be a very exciting day today. As we have sung together, as we study together, as you speak together and encourage each other, as we eat together and we watch different people who are serving and who are encouraging and being a blessing, all of a sudden we begin realizing, wow, God has gifted the body uniquely for such a time as this. Spiritual gifts are for the body, not for the individual. So let me ask you for a moment, if spiritual gifts are for the body, not the individual, when a person doesn't use their spiritual gift, who does it impact? It would impact the whole body, wouldn't it? In that the gifts are for the body, not for an individual. Because sometimes, you know, we may be tempted to say, well, you know, I'll just, I'll go to church, but I'm not going to use my gifts in the church. And when we do that, we really haven't thought about it's impacting everybody when we don't use what God's given us. Because you see, every one of you, every one of, well, every one of me, uh, all of us are important for the body. There's no one who is an exclusion say, well, they don't matter. Can you function without a piece of the body? Well, sure you can. It's just really inconvenient. Things don't function well. Whenever a person doesn't use his gift, the body the body suffers. So if, if my eye this morning, I don't know if you've ever had an eye that's twitching or whatever, and it just won't, you just can't, get it to function. Now, I can do okay. I'm a little uncomfortable driving with just one eye. People do it, but it's, it's difficult. Or if you have a hand that doesn't want to do, you function, but it's difficult. Or a foot. You see, it doesn't stop the church. It's just really inconvenient and you're not nearly as effective as what you could be. I appreciated one man giving the, uh, this illustration. One of the commentators said, he said, I'm, I'm not much for orchestras. But he said, but someone in the church wanted me to go see an orchestra, and I said, okay, I'll go with you. And he said, I was just amazed. He said, I walked in, and he said, everyone all of a sudden walked out. They weren't, they weren't all dressed alike. He said they kind of looked in casual clothes at that point, and they walked out, and he said they started blowing their own horns and, and squeaking whatever and bowing whatever, and he said, and it was just kind of this noise. He said it wasn't music, it wasn't anything. And he said then all of a sudden, he said everyone just left the stage. He said and a few minutes later, they all came back in. They were dressed identically, and they grabbed their instruments, and they just sat down. And he said no one made a noise. He said then the conductor came in and they all played together. He said, and it was beautiful. He said, after the first song, he said, I was 
pretty much done with listening to the orchestra. But he said, this is what I did the rest of the time when I was sitting there. He said, I was thinking about how everyone had to work together, and if someone in that group was out of tune, it impacted the whole group. And I thought, you know, what a great illustration for us as a small group of believers, but also as, as part of the large body of Christ, when we get out of tune, it's not about us. It's about the body. Now notice how he gave gifts. Let's begin at verse 8. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth, that he descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might, full, that he might fill all things. Let's pause there for just a moment. What's he talking about? This is a quotation from Psalm 68. If you'd like to, again, leave your finger here, but flip back to Psalm 68, you can see the passage that I'm telling you about. In Psalm 68, verses 18 and 19. But listen to what it says. You'll notice a slight change in the text. Thou hast ascended on high, thou hast led captivity captive, thou hast received gifts for men, yea, for the rebellious also, that the Lord God might dwell among them. Blessed be the Lord who daily loadeth us with benefits, even the God of our salvation. Selah. Stop and think about that. Now notice the differences that are here. It's, he ascended. The ascension of Christ did two things. Notice with me, verse 8. When he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Two things when he ascended on high. Led captivity captive. We read Old Testament believers, when they died, went to Hades. It's the place of the dead. But interestingly enough, Jesus, in Luke chapter 16, before his death and burial and resurrection, Jesus talked about the rich man and Lazarus, and they going to, they died, and being in hell, one of them was in paradise, and the other one is in a place of torment. Isn't that interesting that they both were in this place of the dead, and they were both imprisoned, they were both waiting, but they were waiting for... The release. Now, when Jesus talked about the rich man and Lazarus, he talked about one went to the place of torment, one went to the place of refreshment. I believe what this is talking about is he went, when Jesus Christ died, he went down, obviously descended, talks about the incarnation, but it also talks about going to the place of the dead, and Jesus Christ released those Old Testament saints and brought them with him. That's the reason why we never read in the New Testament about church-age believers ever going to the, the place of paradise. Remember when Jesus was hanging on the cross and the thief said, remember me? And Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. 
Why? Because before Jesus was going to go up, Jesus went down and led those who had been waiting to be ransomed. He, he led them, he led captivity captive. And that's what I believe this is talking about here in verse 9. And then it says, he gave gifts unto men. Interestingly, when you think back, what did Psalm 68 said? He received gifts for men. Notice that slight difference. One is in the New Testament, it says he gave gifts. In Psalm 68, it says he received gifts for men. What it appears the text is telling us is he was quoting the Psalms and he's saying, Jesus Christ, when he came down, he did all that needed to be done. He brought the Old Testament saints with him, and when he returned to heaven, then he gave gifts. He had gotten the gifts. He then gave gifts unto men. Now let's go on to verse 11. And he gave some as apostles. He gave some as prophets. He gave some as evangelists. He gave some as pastors and teachers. Now we just have a partial listing here because he's focusing on something very specific on the church. Now if, we, if we'll go back, let me see here. Look at Ephesians chapter 2 verse 20. And the context still is all about the church. What do we know upon what was the church built? He says, are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. So what do we find here? As he is saying, I have given you everything you're going to need. I have empowered you and I've given you the grace to accomplish what I've asked you to do with this giftedness. He says, I'm going to give you certain things for the benefit of the church so that the church can mature. We find apostles. Now, who are the apostles? The apostles were one who had seen the resurrected Christ, but also had been directly commissioned by Christ for a specific task. Apostles are sent ones. And very specifically, we're talking about Jesus chose 12 disciples. We find that then when Judas betrayed him, in Acts chapter 1, we find that they said, we've got to find another apostle, and they elected Matthias. I was, we were talking about this at breakfast this morning. I always felt bad for Matthias. I think Matthias was a man who loved God. He was a man who obviously had been there all along. But I don't know that there was ever a direct call by Jesus Christ to Matthias to be an apostle. They prayed about it. They drew lots. And if you're convinced that one of those two is the one that God wants, then drawing lots is a good thing. But if that was not what God had, someone was going to get the lot. And so I'm just giving you an opinion. I don't know that that was the apostle. What do we know about the apostle Paul? He saw the resurrected Christ. He didn't see him the way the others did. 
he saw him in a vision and then he was with, he was trained by Jesus Christ for three years in the desert. And so, and he had a very direct call to the Gentiles. Apostles were a very unique group of men. They were sent on a mission, and that mission was to establish the church. I don't believe from um, Acts chapter 16, verse 4, I don't believe that we ever see the apostles. Now, we learn more about the apostle Paul, but we don't see apostles being replaced. We don't ever see that, that when one died, they got another one. They tried to start that in Acts chapter 1, and we never hear of it again. And I believe that's because the apostles had a very specific giftedness by God for the church. And what was that for the foundation of the church? The prophets were foundations. The, prophets, the, the apostles were foundational. The, the apostles gave the body of doctrine. Then you have the prophets. They were also foundational for the church. In the Old Testament, we stopped seeing prophets when all of the Old Testament scripture was fulfilled. In the New Testament, we stopped seeing prophets at the end of the New Testament era when all the scripture was fulfilled. We don't see prophets anymore today. They ceased. But prophets were the ones, they were more general. The prophets were one, I'm sorry, the apostles were more general. They covered the whole body. Prophets seemed to be more focused on local bodies. In fact, even with the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians, in Acts chapter 13, when he is spoken of in the local assembly, he's dealt with as a prophet and a teacher. When he was to the large, he was the apostle. I believe that the prophets also ceased and again, there's no listing of these, of prophets or of apostles ever being replaced. I find it interesting also, though, that it never says that the pastors and teachers replaced the apostles and the prophets. And I believe that was because they were both functioning in the New Testament era. And as the apostles and as the prophets died out, the only, the only gifts that you now see are of the Pastor, of the evangelist and the pastor-teacher. An apostle was verified. How apostle could demonstrate who he was, and even the prophets, they did signs and wonders and miracles. Why did they do signs and wonders? It was to verify that they were this unique group of people. That's an important thing because today you're going to meet people who do signs and wonders and miracles, or at least say they do. But you have to stop and think, and so what would be the purpose? Signs and wonders and miracles have always been very unique all through Scripture. It wasn't that they were continually going on. Moses did them. You find a few of the prophets did them, Elijah, Elisha. Not all prophets did. But very unique times when you saw a major change coming in what God was doing, God would make sure everyone knew this is from him. So he did signs and wonders. Jesus Christ came and did signs and wonders. Why? To make sure people realized who he was. The apostles did this so that everyone would know, okay, this is the truth. After, after this body 
of material, the Bible, the doctrine was completed, there was no reason for signs and wonders any longer. Now we go on and it says, he gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists. The word evangelist is someone who gives out the good news, to proclaim the good news, to preach and explain the good news of salvation to those who have never believed. Is this a, is this a gift that God still gives today? Absolutely. We often usually think about evangelists as someone who comes in for a week and does special meetings at a church and leaves, and they can do that, but specifically, this is a man who is very gifted in evangelism. I can't remember if I've mentioned to you before, I met a man that I wished I could be like him, but I, I, I wasn't. I don't know how this man did it. He would be talking with someone, and he would, his heart, would, he would just be showing them the gospel. And before I'd know it, the guy was leading someone to the Lord. I mean, it was impossible to keep a schedule with this guy. Everywhere we went, it was always like we were always waiting on Carlos because Carlos constantly was leading someone to the Lord. And, you know, he'd, and he was just, it wasn't that he was this flamboyant. He was just this non-assuming guy that would kind of walk up and be talking to somebody and Soon enough, I'd see him have his arm around the guy, and they'd be talking, and then they'd be crying, and then he'd say, well, that guy just received Christ as a Savior. Now, his prayer every day when he would go out was just, Lord, help me to find someone today that's not angry with you. Someone's just looking for you. Help me to find that person today. And every day, it was just this, I loved being with him, just to stand there and just to see what God was doing. I believe this man was incredibly gifted in evangelism. And he helped establish churches. He wasn't the kind of guy that really stayed in a church. He tried pastoring, that wasn't his thing. He could help plant a church, but he was pretty much gone very quickly. And you see, it's a giftedness that God gives. Who do we know? Well, Timothy, we know, did stay in a local church for a little while to help establish that. But probably one of the men that stands out that the Scriptures call him Philip the Evangelist uh, in Acts chapter 21, verse 8, we read about in Acts chapter 8, where God sent Philip to go and witness. Timothy did the, was told, I want you to do the work of an evangelist. Now, that's something that we all are going to be told, you know, do the work of going out and spreading the gospel because we're all called to be witnesses. But, you know, some of you, and I believe in this body, God is going to give us people who just are good at evangelism. And if we say, boy, I don't see anybody here like that yet, then you know what we're going to see? God's going to bring that person. Or God's going to gift or maybe some of us are gifted, and at this point we just are uncomfortable. And we're saying, oh, I don't know. I, I don't know. But just always remember, but unto every one of us is, is, uh, unto every one of us is given grace, according to the measure of the gift. If God gives you the gift, God also gives you the enablement to do that gift. How can I do what I do? Part of my background, you may not know, is that I'm a stutterer. And it can be frustrating. Where you try to say something, 
and it just doesn't come out, or what comes out isn't anywhere close, or it just, I stammer at it. I went to school, a special kind of school, to get rid of that. But when God called me to be a preacher, God also had to give the enablement so that I can do what I do. It's not me. It is the Holy Spirit. At least, if I'm using my gift in the right way. Today, it ought to be the Holy Spirit that's coming out. It shouldn't be me. Then we come to this last. He says, and he gave some pastors and teachers. Interestingly enough, this is not like every one of the others where it was there were some apostles and then a different category and then a different category. When he came to pastors and teachers, it's one category. The teachers is an explanation of what a pastor does. The word pastor, the normal meaning is the word shepherd. That's normally how it would be used. Instead of hearing the word pastor, you would usually hear the word shepherd being used. And it emphasizes the care, protection, and leadership of this man for the flock or for the body. Teaching is the primary function of how he shepherds. It's teaching what God's word says. So let's think for a moment because we've probably, in fact, in our Constitution, we will read this. How is pastor, elder, and bishop connected? What does the scripture teach us? These are different ways of identifying the same person. Pastor has the meaning of shepherd. Bishop has the meaning of overseer. Elder has the meaning of being older and mature and one that passes down to the next generation. All three of these terms are used for the same office. The qualifications in 1 Timothy chapter 3 for a bishop are the same qualifications in, in Titus chapter 1 for an elder. 1 Peter 5 uses all three terms together. Elders are to bishop well as they pastor. Isn't that interesting? The reason they've given different terms for the same office is so, so that we can understand what's that office supposed to be like. In Acts chapter 20, verse 17, the Apostle Paul addresses the elders, and in verse 28... He uses the terms interchangeably, and he says, Take heed to yourself and to the flock over the which you are called to be an overseer. Elder, pastor, bishop, all the same thing. Describing the same office. All three identify those who feed and lead the church yet with a different emphasis. Now, I thought this was interesting, and it helped me to understand. In the Jewish culture, they used the word elder all the time. They had the elders of the Jewish people. And they understood, when you're talking about an elder, they understood that it was someone who was going to be overseeing. They were mature. They had the best interests of the people in mind. And they were people that they were that, that were looked up to. So 
In the early church, most of the believers were Jews. What would be a description of this office that they would understand? It would be elders. The Jewish understood that. Now, in the Greek culture, as, as others were beginning to receive Christ and become part of the church, they didn't understand the word elder. That wasn't something that was in the Greek culture. But they did understand what we have the word today of bishop, an episkopos. And here's how it was used in the secular realm, which is how people would know it. In the secular realm, when Caesar, when, when an authority was going to start a new city, he would appoint a bishop. We're, the word bishop is so ingrained in church today, we have a hard time with that. But episkopos talked about the overseer, and the Greeks understood, oh, this is someone who has been placed by a higher authority to whom that person is responsible, and he is to help set up a new way that things are going to be done as compared to what might have been done in other cities that were not part. So the Greeks understood bishop or episkopos. Jewish people understood elders because those were part of the group that were the mature. They were ones that were to help pass down the right information. Think about this for a moment. For the Greek, when they thought bishop, they thought, oh, that person is responsible to a higher power. He never was an ultimate authority. A bishop was never someone who today we think of the bishop making all the decisions. No, the bishop was only someone who was doing the bidding of the one who was genuinely an authority. That's the reason why we read in the New we read in Hebrews where he talks about submitting yourself to those who have the authority over you because they've got to give an account. See, this position is not this position of dictatorship. It was never intended for that. That's why all three of these terms are so important. An elder was someone who would lead in the right direction and who by their own demeanor was mature and was someone you could trust. A bishop was someone who was guarding and protecting to make sure that things didn't come in. In fact, the best illustration of that is our Lord Jesus Christ, who talked about submitting yourself to the bishop of your soul, the one who guards and protects. You see the sweetness of these terms? There's not this angry wrangling. There's not this authority complex. It is totally understanding a body. In fact, the scripture talks about the chief shepherd in 1 Peter chapter 5. Who's the chief shepherd? Well, the chief elder, the chief bishop, the Lord Jesus Christ. I, in this local body, am just an under-shepherd. I'm, I'm a bishop, meaning I'm directly responsible. I have to give an account for what I do to this body, how I've treated this body how I treat the individuals in this body.
the role of a pastor, bishop, elder does not lead by force, does not lead by dictatorial decree. He leads by precept. He leads by example. Now, why did he give it to the church? We won't, we're going to spend more time on this next week, but if you notice, it was for the perfecting of the saints so that they could do the work of the ministry. My job for this local body is to help you so that you can be mature. Unity and diversity. A worthy walk impacts the saved and unsaved. It doesn't change who you are. God's already done that. But your walk in this world, on this earth, allows people to recognize you and be blessed by you by the visible characteristics. And that's the reason why, after he gave all this doctrine, he says, let me just describe individually, these are the attitudes that should be there. Corporately, this is our unifying part. But corporately, we're all going to be different. Don't expect everyone to be the same. Unity among believers is important. If they don't see that we treat each other differently than the way the world treats each other, how will they know that we're genuine? Our diversity is how this body is going to grow. God has gifted each of us for the sake of the body. Gifts are never used for personal edification. Each person is unique, as I mentioned, like a snowflake, like a fingerprint, similar yet different. And God has blended your gifts for this body. Can I ask you this question? How has Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, gifted you? I remember as I was just, a lot of it is when you're doing, along the way, when you're involved in serving, you begin to realize, wow, I love doing this. This is, this is like, if I could do this all the time, this is what I would do. And you know, when God called me to do what I do, I love doing what I do. I could, I could do this all the time. Each of you are gifted in a unique way. And as you just seek to be used by the Holy Spirit, you're going to begin to see how you're gifted. But let me also remind you of this. Do you know you can't use those gifts without the Holy Spirit? Because the gifts are all part of Him. If you've been frustrated and you say, I just, I don't know, I just can't do that. It might be because you've been trying to do it on your own. Letting the Holy Spirit be in charge. Look to serve the body. Be yourself for the sake of the body. Unity and diversity. We've got great days ahead. <laughs>